Now, if you would please take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You feel like in this passage we have been climbing this mountain. If, and if that's the scenario that we want to use, this is the apex. This is the climax of the mountain. This is the, the peak, the pinnacle of the mountain of this book today. We're going to be reading verses 11 and 12, just a couple of verses you're hearing today. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this Word, how precious it is. We thank You for speaking to us through these men, through Paul, through a godly man that loves You and upholds Your Word. And thank You, Lord, for Your preservation of Your Word, the church passing this down and preserving it, protecting it for generation after generation for 2,000 years. And so, Lord, we find ourselves opening this book and then craving its content because these are Your words and they, they edify our souls. And I pray that that would happen today. May we chew these, this meat, meaty text today and, and digest the nutrients that, that will grow us, that will mature us in Christ. We thank You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, Paul is giving Timothy a label, a title, if you will. A label. The man of God. Now, it's kind of cliche, but man of God. A, a man who is carrying a message from God to the world. And he does it through a man. He's a man of God. Now, in the Old Testament, this, uh, this term was used... Of Moses, and it was used of, of Samuel, these great men of God, Elijah and Elisha and David. The, uh, there was also a, a, um, an angel of the Lord appeared in, in the book of Judges once, and he, was, he, was, he appeared as a man of God. A man of God. And it's used kind of sparsely, really, throughout the, the Old Testament for these God, these messengers, these men of God, these messengers that were sent by God to the world with a message. And um, now Timothy is one of those men. In fact, in the New Testament, he's the only one that has this title of man of God. And it's a label. Now, we have to be very careful with labels, don't we? we have to, they have an effect on us. They have an effect on people. There's a stigma many times that go along with that. And you, we understand that. We, we try to put the right labels on people. And the, we, uh, we have in our society in America today, you have to register as a sex offender. That's a label that we put on them. And we want that label to stick. We want that stigma to go along with that person wherever they go because of what they've done. And there's a, there's a stigma to that. And, and we have to be careful with our children. Of what stigma, what kind of labels they get put on 
uh, put on them. And sometimes it can be a degrading thing, something that just tears them down, or it can be something that's inspiring. It can be something that just builds them up, something that this title that, that they want to aspire to. And that's the kind of labels that we want to put on our children. Something that they, they earn, they want to, they want to better themselves to take this label. And we use many terms for Christians in the, in our culture today. He's a good man or he's a man of faith. He's a, a godly man, we might say. He's a real Christian or he's a righteous man. You know, things like that. But there's no higher label put on any men in the Old Testament other than man of God. Is a man of God. And listen, the church needs more good Christians, needs more faithful men and godly men, but we need men of God. Men of God. He's a man with all the strength that that word can muster up. He has convictions. He's strong in the word. And that's not men of God. It's a man of God. Sometimes he's isolated. Sometimes he just stands alone. He's just by himself. He's independent. He cannot rely on the morals of other people. But it's own moral fortitude. His own conscience. His own convictions. This is a man of God. Coming from God. He's a spokesman for God. Representing God. Representing God. The not not himself. He's a man of God. He's a man of God. Holiness, righteous God, a true and living God who is completely unique and, and set apart from man. A, a God who speaks to the world through men. He speaks. God who speaks, and he is to be heard, and he is to be he is to be feared, he is to be obeyed. So Timothy is taking on this man of God title. And it's weighty. I want you to feel the, the weight of that. Now to the rest of the world, Timothy, he just looks like a, a normal guy. He's just, he's just, a, just one of us. He's just he's no, nothing special there. But in the spiritual realm, he serves the true and living supreme being of the universe. And he is a spokesman for God. And in this passage, Paul is comparing Timothy to these false teachers who are, who are motivated by money, motivated by their own greed. And Timothy just stands. He is, he is to stand. In fact, he is to aspire. Aspire. And, and Paul wants him to be encouraged or wants to encourage Timothy to, to aspire to this title, to this label that he is taking. And this is what I want you to see. Today, the church needs true men of God who will be faithful spokesmen for God. And the question that Paul answers for us in this passage is, what are the marks of a man of God? What does he look like? What is his distinguishing character? What is his characteristics? And he gives us four. He gives us four characteristics that, that mark out a loyal, faithful man of God. And I, I just want to get right into them. Look at the first one. In verse 11, he says, but flee these things, you man of God. And the, the first thing is that a man of God flees sin. He, he flees something. 
Now, this is an interesting sentence, a very well-constructed sentence, very carefully constructed sentence in the Greek. And it doesn't translate that well in the, uh, in the English. And in the Greek, the first word, I hate to put all this on you, but, but it's, it's important to understand because of the emphasis. The first word in the Greek sentence is that's the most important word. And that's the word that's being emphasized. And they'll structure the sentence to, to make sure that that word is put first. And the first word here is the word but. There's a, there's a huge contrast between these false teachers and Timothy. Now, but, but it's kind of all, it's a phrase that comes together. And I want you to see it. So it's, it's but. The first word is but. The second word is you. But you. You, Timothy. And the second, the third word there, there's an, an O that's not translated in most of the English translations that I saw. But it, it's an exclamatory. It's bringing some urgency, some importance to what he's saying. And the first phrase, the first real phrase is man of God. So it reads like this, but you, oh, Timothy, but you, oh, man of God. And so he's elevating this phrase. This phrase is what's so important. This phrase, in contrast to these false teachers, Timothy, I want you to raise to the level of a man of God. A man of God. And Timothy, his life was genuinely changed. And Paul saw it genuinely changed by God and by the gospel, the message. And Timothy had developed a conviction that this is the word of God. And they were preaching the message from God. And he had committed his life. He had given his life to be used by God. And he was a man of God. A man of God. Now... He says, but you, O Timothy, you man of God, he says, flee these things. Now, another thing that's interesting about this sentence is he puts both of these verbs together. Flee and pursue. They're both together. So it's, oh, you man of God, flee and pursue. Flee, pursue. The emphasis there. Two verbs. There's an imperator. Both of them are commands. They're side by side. And he says to flee, literally fly, fly from one place to the other. Get out of the way. It's like a, a bird getting ready to be pounced on by a cat. And the, the cat's ready to bounce and, and the bird flies away. He flees. It's the word that we get our English word fugitive from. Somebody that's fled the country. Somebody that's fleeing from the law. He's on the lamb, we might say. Now, it's also, and I know I'm giving you a lot of Greek here, but it's also a present tense. That means it's a constant, continuous fleeing. Be in the, the, be in the habit, Timothy, of fleeing these things. Now, what are these things? These things, in this context, goes back to being motivated by the love of money. In contrast to these false teachers who were motivated by their own greed and love for money, Timothy, you are not to, to, to do these things. In fact, you are to flee these things. Flee the love of money and, and the dangers that we talked about last week and the entrapment that grabs a hold of us and holds us. So Timothy is to run and flee from this greed. And Paul, in his ministry, he didn't even want the appearance 
of greed and this love for money. I want you to see this, how important this was to Paul. Turn over to Acts chapter 20. And Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He had gathered them together. Paul was getting ready to to leave and go up to Jerusalem. And they know that things were not going to be good there for Paul. And so these Ephesian elders come together and they loved Paul. And Paul pours out his heart to them. But he, he makes a special point to them in verse 33. Acts chapter 20 and verse 33 says this. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. Why would you say that, Paul? Because he doesn't even want to, he doesn't even want to appear. He says, I didn't do that. He says, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my needs, my own hands, ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Look, I took care of them. You guys didn't put out one red cent. I took care of them. It's from my own hand. And Paul wanted to make that point, wanted to point that out to them. That was important to Paul. Why? Well, turn over. He does the same thing with 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It gives us a little bit more insight here to Paul's attitude. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12 you know, he develops this. I wish I could read the whole passage for the sake of time. We cannot. From verses 1 all the way down to verse 15. And he says, look, I have every right as an apostle to ask money from you. And I could do that. But he says in verse 12, he says, if others share the, the right over you, I do more. I mean, Paul is the one that evangelized this and established this church. He had that right. But he says, nevertheless, I did not use I did not use that right, but we endured all things so that we would will cause no hindrance of the gospel. That's why Paul doesn't want even the appearance. He does not want anyone to think that he is motivated to spread this gospel because of money. And so he's saying, Timothy, I want you to flee, flee these things. Now, the, the man of God would flee these things, would flee greed And being motivated by greed because he sees the danger and he sees the result. It's like Joseph fleeing. He knew what was going to happen. And he even leaves his coat behind. He just pulls his coats off and just leaves. She grabbed a hold of him and and man, he just fled. He left. But the man of God, he he sees the the greed. He's not just motivated just to uh, get rid of the greed in his own life or, or to flee greed. But all sin, isn't he? The man of God flees all sin. He's like Job. Job said he was a righteous man. He pursued God. But it says he turned away from evil. It takes both, doesn't it? And you need to understand that. It's both. It's not just pursuing righteousness. No, it's fleeing from evil. One of the commentaries, John Kitchen, he said, uh, one, one cannot flee without pursuing, nor can one pursue without fleeing. It takes both. And First uh, John, John tells us that we are not to love the things in the world. He says, don't even love the things in the world. Don't go down that path. Do not love. So there are things that the Christian is to hate, and that is sin. Christians are to, to hate it, to reject it. There's a, he has convictions in his own heart, in his own mind, and his conscience, when his conscience is violated, when there's sin present, he reacts to that. And he gets out of the way. He just, he flees from that temptation. 
He knows what pleases God and, and he wants to please God and he knows the things that doesn't please God and he flees from those things. He flees from those things. Christians are to hate sin. That's just as important as pursuing righteousness. Sometimes we don't think like that. It's just as important. You know what? There's always something to flee, isn't there? There's always going to be something for us to, to flee, to put off. Sinful attitudes of the world. Man, they just come and they just bombard us. And sometimes we don't even know it. And we need to flee in our mind. Sometimes we, the philosophies of the world, the world's character and the world's value system, we need to flee those things. We need to reject those. The world's habits, the world's thinking, the world's language sometimes. So we have to ask ourselves, men, men, do we hate sin? Do we hate sin enough to flee? Flee from it. Get away from it. Sometimes I believe we just needlessly tolerate it without fleeing in our own mind and getting away and saying, no, that violates my own conscience and react to that. So the man of God, he flees from sin. And number two, the man of God pursues holiness. He pursues holiness. Pursuit here is a, is a great word. It's to run after with the intent to, to capture, with the intent to catch it, to grab it. Okay? Now, when I was, uh, when I was, when I had kids that were little, uh, I would play tag with the kids, you know, and I'd pretend to run after them and, oh no, I can't get you. And they would look around, they see me coming and they would try to run and I could catch them, but I would run with the intent not to really catch them, just to kind of pretend. Kind of pretend. That's not this kind of running after. This is a, a pressing toward the goal, the, uh, the ideas that I want this so bad, I will get this, and I will run in such a way as to get it. To so the man of God, he not only flees, but he pursues something. He's not only against things, he's for things. He pursues holiness. Look in the middle of verse uh, 11. Flee these things, O man of God, and pursue Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He gives us a whole list of things to pursue. I like what one commentary said. He says, as fast as a man of God runs from the corrupting love of money, he runs toward spiritual virtues. And if he stops, what is behind him will catch him and he will miss his goal of holiness, his own sin. If he stops, we cannot stop. Uh, pursuing, pursuing righteousness and holiness. And Paul gives us a list. What does that include? Well, here's a list. Holiness. When you pull it all together. Number one is righteousness. Righteousness. It's not our declared righteousness. Not the righteousness that we have in Christ that was imputed to us. No, this is, this is a practical righteousness. This is the way that Christ lived. This is just doing right in our relationship between God and man. It's living in obedience with God. It's basically conforming to the character of God. It's just doing what God would do. Doing what Christ would do. And it, and it should mark the Christian life. Just righteousness. That's his lifestyle. It's just obedience to God. Number two, we are to pursue, Timothy was to pursue Godliness, God likeness. 
like God. It has to do with more of the attitude, the attitude and the motives of the heart. It's an outward godliness is an outward evidence of genuine faith that something has happened inside and you can now see it. It's outward, but it takes place inside. And it, and it flows out to, from this reverence of God inside, it flows out to a life of worship for God. A life of worship. It's the right action flowing from the right motive. And these false teachers, what did they do? They would mimic godliness. They would pretend to have godliness. They would, pre- they would uh, uh, just act godly on the outside, but they inside their inside was not. They were not genuine. And Timothy, he was to be genuinely godly. Godliness. Doing things with the right motive. I'd say you what, today, we, we don't even, we just assume. The, the, the press, the media, the world just assumes when a person is godly, ah, oh, watch. Just keep an eye because you know that they're not genuinely godly and, and uh, they're faking it. And Timothy, you are to be genuinely godly. Folks, there is such a thing. There is such a thing as genuine godliness, living a pure life with the right motives. The world doesn't understand that, and they just think we're all a bunch of fakes and a bunch of phonies. And we need to prove them wrong. The man of God stands in his own convictions. Let's move on. He is a man of faith as well. We're to pursue faith. And this is Timothy's personal trust in God. It's an it's a, a unwavering commitment, loyal to the Lord. Loyalty to the Lord. One commentary said, I think it was John MacArthur, he says, Faith is the atmosphere in which the, the man of God exists. He just exists in that, that realm of faith. Faith in God, trusting God, constantly trusting God. Faith is always growing, isn't it? It's like a muscle. We just keep exercising that faith. And that muscle gets stronger and stronger and stronger. That's the way it was with the disciples. And then he pursues love. And this is the love of choice. This is the love of, of uh, there's emotion to it, but there's a, a choose. I'm going to choose with my will to love you. But this is directed toward God. This is an all-encompassing love. Uh, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a, a passion for God. And it marks all the believers. It should mark every believer. And they react and they respond in, in light of that to all situations with love for God. He pursues perseverance. And you say, that's kind of interesting. Perseverance. He pursues perseverance. Yeah, the, the idea, the, the meaning of the word here is to, to remain under, to stand up underneath and, and hold something up, to remain under. As something is pushing down, you just stand underneath it. It, it has to do with uh, an inward fortitude that holds up under trials and persecutions and, and even dealing with sin. You say, well, I've dealt with that sin. Yeah, yeah. You're going to have to continue to deal with that sin. Don't give up. It's a, a patient endurance with an attitude of hope and encouragement. It's not one of those attitudes of passive, fatalistic hope. Oh, I hope so, but I'm not going to put my... You know, I'm just kind of fatalistic living life, but it's a victorious loyalty to the Lord. I'm living life. Living life. And, and, and He's underneath maybe trials and persecutions and, and tough things, but He's enduring. He's holding up. 
It's a, one, one said that it was the perseverance of the martyrs. It's all the way to the end. They held up. They hold up. He's to pursue that. Timothy's also, and lastly, he's pursued gentleness. And that's meekness and kindness. That's a, a mild, even-temperedness. And again, we see this, and I, I tell you, I would encourage you to study this word out throughout the, Old, throughout the New Testament. It's so important to anyone that works with the gospel of Jesus Christ as a humility. And it stems, listen, it stems from a brokenness of sin, a brokenness of, over his own sin, and a realization that he has done nothing to gain his salvation. He could do nothing even for other people to gain their salvation. And it's essentially a hopeless, helpless beggar trying to show of another beggar where to find food. There's a humility there. Listen, I don't know about you, but I, I found some food over here. I found this gospel. I found this hope in my own life. Maybe it'll help you as well. That's the idea. There's a gentleness. Gentleness. Realizing that we are all under this bondage of sin. It's a humbling thing. And Timothy was to pursue holiness. He was to pursue that. He was to run after that. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, you are to run in such a way as to win. Now, like I said, you play with your kids and you pretend to run. Sometimes I believe that's the way we are with the, whole, with the uh, Christian life. We just kind of pretend. You know, it's like the, the little boy running the, the, the track race. And, and he's running and he looks over, sees his mom and he's waving. He's not focused. That's kind of the way we are, I think, with the Christian life. We just kind of, oh, here we are. Look at me. I'm trying. Are we trying? Are we really running to win? Running to win. Just a, a passage over, page over, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Paul said to Timothy, he said this, in the context of this dealing with Timothy, he says, pay close attention to yourself. That's, that's the idea here. Of this holiness. If you're going to be holy, you better guard your words, guard your attitude. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Men, women, do we examine ourselves? Do we examine? Do we do, we do any kind of self-reflection? We look at ourselves and say, Oh God, I, I'm weak in this area. I'm so, so uh, uh, puny here. Help me. Help me. What do we aspire to? Do we aspire to holiness? Or just mediocrity? Do we just you say, I'm just trying to get through my day. I don't even think about spiritual things. I don't think about this spiritual world. I'm just so tied down to this physical world. Paul says, you better detach yourself from this physical world in such a way, at such a time, as to evaluate your own self in in light of your holiness before God. And you are to pursue it. We're to pursue it. Not half-heartedly. We're to pursue holiness. So the man of God aspires. He aspires to, to this level. And he wants to be that, that spiritual rock. That stability. That faithful man who is holy. And has is standing on his own convictions. And he realizes sometimes even his own family has to depend upon him. Even his own family has to rely upon him. He's that rock. And I tell you what. Churches can be built on this kind of man. 
So the man of God, he's marked by what he flees. He's also marked by what he pursues. Number three, the man of God fights the fights for the truth. He contends for the truth. He fights for it. In verse uh, 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. And the word fight there is our English word for agonize. The Greek word agonizomai. To, to agonize. It's, the idea here is to exert every ounce of energy to win. Again, it's almost that same idea. And it speaks of, of conflict and struggle and fighting. Fighting for the clarity of the truth. The clarity for the gospel and everything that's related to it. It's used in the military. It was a military term. It's also um, an athletic term in that context as well. When you see the, the use of the word. And it has the idea of um, concentration and effort to win. Giving it your all. Giving it your all. So fight. Conflict. What are we to fight for? He says, fight the good fight of the faith. It's actually the faith. Now, most of the uh, English translations, I know the article is left out. But there is an article there. It's the faith. It's the faith. And that's referring to this body of truth that the, uh, that the church had early on. And he was to contend for that. And what's interesting here is it's also in the middle voice. <laughs> And what does that mean? I know I've given you a lot of Greek. You guys should be Greek scholars by now. In the middle voice, it's, it's reflecting inward. Okay? And, and the idea is the struggle is not only external. It's not only out there. It's an internal struggle. Fight the good fight of the faith. That, that means in your study, Timothy. And it has a long range here, a big range. In your study, Timothy, you agonize over the truth. You get the truth right. That's the study to show yourself approved unto God. And it's getting the truth uh, into your own thinking. Your own thinking. And then being able to sit down with other people in the external and, and fighting and, and talking and discussing the truth. And pointing out the truth to other people. Turn over to Jude, verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was thinking, while I was making every effort to write to you about your common salvation, so he's, I was going to write about this salvation, but he says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend, fight, contend earnestly for what? The faith. Which was once delivered to the hands uh, down to the saints. So God has delivered the faith, this body of knowledge down to the faith. And we are to protect it. We are to fight for this truth. Fight for this truth. It's a conflict between Satan and his lies and all that he fills our minds with. And sometimes it's an internal struggle. Sometimes it's also an external struggle. But it's a good fight, he says. It's a good fight. It's noble. It means it's, it's excellent. Not only intrinsically good doing the right thing, but it's also um, outwardly attractive. <laughs> it's outwardly beautiful. It's someone standing for the truth. And I tell you what, you've seen down through the ages these men of God who have stood for truth and who have fought. Who have fought. 
You just look at them and you have such high respect for them. John MacArthur says this. He says, being a spokesman for God calls a man into warfare. If you're going to accept, accept this title, if you're going to accept this as a spokesman a job, as a spokesman for God, you're accepting warfare. And he goes on to say it is a, a constant battle against the flesh and the devil. And it's a constant battle against this resistance of this fallen world who loves sin and who loves error and who hates truth and they hate righteousness. And we have to stand in truth and in righteousness and we're going to fight battles. That's just the way it is. Now, this isn't quarreling over empty philosophies, worldly fables and quibbling over words. No, this is contention. This is competition for the truth. We stand upon the Word of God. Here's what God's Word says. And we contend for that truth. We dispense that truth so that error no longer is ringing in the minds of people. Did you get that? We have a world that falsehood, that lies, just ring in the minds of people. And we have to dispense that truth so that falsehood just leaves. So that truth is ringing in the minds of people. Say, how do you do that? Well, Paul tells us right here earlier, if you look back at chapter 4, 1 Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 6, he says this, in pointing out these things, what is that? Just truth? Pointing out these things, you will be a good servant to the, uh, of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the word, that's the truth of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you've been following. First of all, we have to nourish ourselves on it, Right? It has to feed us constantly, feeding us. We have to come to that realization that it is truth, even in our own lives. Another passage, chapter 3, verse 15, one out of read many times, just read the last part. The church of the living God, the pillar and support of the what? The truth. So as the church, we're holding up the truth. We're the pillar of truth. So we, we absorb it, we're constantly nourished on it, and then we hold it up, hold the truth up as examples to the world of what this truth is. And we guard it and protect it. But then also, check back to chapter 2 and verse 4. Who desire, and this is God, who's our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. This is talking about evangelism. And to come to the knowledge of what? The truth. So we, we absorb this truth. It feeds us. And we grow stronger and stronger. And we uphold this truth. We live out this truth as examples to the world. And then we just dispense this truth. We give it out. Because God wants every person to come to the knowledge of truth. We dispense it. That's the best way to fight against Satan. Is just dispense the truth. And we've got to know it. We've got to know it. There's no shortcuts to this. We dispense the truth. The man of God, he sees the need to know the truth, protect the truth, and get it into himself and, and protect it from error. So he flees, he pursues, and he fights. And number four, and we'll conclude with this, the man of God lives with eternal perspective. He lives with an eternal perspective. In verse 12, in the middle of verse 12, he says, take hold of eternal life 
to which you were called and made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, take hold of it. Grab it, Timothy. Grab it. Make it your own. It's not just me that you're, you're trying to please anymore. No, this is you. I'm passing the baton to you. This is important, Timothy. You need to grab hold of what? Eternal life. Now, he's not Tim- saying, Timothy, you need to get saved. No. He's saying, Timothy, you need to, to grab hold of it. Grab hold of this reality of eternal life. And you need to live in light of the perspective of eternal life. You need to live in that. We're called to that. We're called to that. He says, to which you were called. All of us were called to eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that what? Whosoever believed in Him should have what? Eternal life. We're going to live forever. That, that makes this temporal world seem so petty, so small, so, so insignificant. In light of a thousand, two thousand, a hundred thousand years. So he holds on. Timothy, you need to grasp this reality that you live in light of eternity. Eternity is what we're called to. You confess to it, Timothy. In, in, in this confession, this good confession, it could be his, the moment of salvation, but it could be also confessing it uh, at his time of his uh, ordination when they sent him out as a minister. It's a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But he was called to it and he confessed to it. If you're a believer, that's what you've done today. And we are to live in light of eternity. Salvation doesn't just change the future, folks. It does. And that's a wonderful thing, but it changes our perspective of the here and now. Of what is important to life. We have to live in light of eternity. And that means then that we don't engage in this petty little world, this meaningless battles that the world, these little skirmishes that the world has. We, we keep an eternal perspective on things. And when we do that, what do we understand is the most important thing in, the, in eternity? There's two things that's going to last forever, and that's the Word of God. He said, well, it will last forever. And what? The souls of man. That's what's important. That's what's important. What you do here on this earth matters. And it matters where you're going to spend eternity. Whether it's going to be in hell or what it's going to be in heaven. What you do here on earth. All of this uh, temporal thing is, uh, temporal world is, is irrelevant in light of all of that. In light of eternity. Believers have an eternal perspective. Not just this physical temporal perspective. We have to evaluate our lives in light of that too, don't we? We have to think. Now, a thousand years from now, what is that going to matter? We have to ask ourselves that question. We determine then how we're going to spend our time in light of eternity. What is most important for me to do right now? How am I going to raise my children right now? In light of eternity. What job, what can I do in light of eternity? What is going to be the best thing to the production of the kingdom, to produce this kingdom, to help this kingdom? So this man of God, he flees sin, he pursues holiness, he fights the good fight, and he lives in the light of eternity. 
Folks, the church needs true men of God who will be faithful spokesmen for God. You say, say, is this important? Why is this important? Is there, is there any value to a man of God? Well, to the world, not much. To a world that's relative, truth isn't that important. But if you say, I believe in the truth, then a man of God begins to take on worth all of a sudden. What is the truth? What is the truth? Is a godly example... What is a godly example worth? To, world, to the world, that's ah, just another person, just another opinion. doesn't mean anything. But to us, a godly example is precious. It is important. It is imperative. It's imperative. If we took these pillars right here, these pillars, you see these pillars here? The dark against the white uh, background. If we took those pillars down, what would happen to this building? What happened to the roof? How important is this? Are they the pillars? He's ah, not important. It's essential. Man of God, men, you need to rise to the level. You want to attain the status of a man of God. It's essential for a church. It's essential for the church. And whether the world recognizes it or not, right now, you know what? It's essential to the world. God has us here for a reason, for a purpose. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for, again, for your word, how precious it is, how important it is. Sometimes the world doesn't place any value at all on this word, just another opinion. Truth is relative. It doesn't really matter. But, Lord, we recognize that there is a spiritual reality out there and that you are the supreme being and that you have a message for man. And, Lord, I pray there would be men and women to rise up, to rise up in this congregation to be godly, to take on these characteristics, to live in light of eternity, to, to flee from sin and pursue righteousness and, and be willing to fight, Lord. Fight. Sometimes it's just standing against this world and just being able to take the abuse of this world and all the philosophies that this world hands out, all the lies that Satan wants to throw at us and wants to distort the truth. I pray that there would be people with discernment that would come from this congregation, that would rise up. And Lord, I pray for our society. Lord, it just seems to be going downhill so quickly, so fast, that just rejecting truth so easily. Lord, help us as a church to stand with conviction with all the people down through the ages who have stood on truth. And Lord, we recognize we don't stand in our own strength. We can't do it. There's a gentleness and a humility that because we recognize we are, we are nothing. Lord, you have to use us. I pray that you would. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thanks for your good attention today. If there's anything that we can do for you, we'd love to be able to do that. We'll have some elders down front. I'll be in the back. Or even throughout the week, uh, please contact us. The spiritual world matters. What you believe matters. What you live out in your life, it matters, folks. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's Monday through Saturday. 
Sunday including. Important stuff. We live in light of eternity. Father, I thank you for your grace. The strength that you give us. Thank you for the nourishment of your word this morning. I pray that we would work it out in our life. Help us to mull this over. And for it to be strong in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.